Uh, let, us, let us pray. Let us go before our Father in heaven and ask him to bless this time as we've already done. Father, we, we continue in prayer. We continue in your presence. Father, who here in this room can, can escape your presence? No one. You're an all-seeing God. You know all things. And you hold all things. So, Father, I ask this morning, as it's already been prayed, that you would glorify yourself as we look at our text this morning, the very heart of Jesus. Father, glorify your name. Is my heart and the heart of your people here this morning. That you would glorify yourself through the preaching of the scriptures, through the public reading of your word, and through the exaltation of Jesus. May you be honored and magnified, and may Christ take residence today in hearts that have not closed with him, that he may become their Lord and their Savior, and that your people would be encouraged as they are reminded of the magnificent Redeemer, the friend of sinners, who has taken place in their, in their hearts so that we can hope one day to be with you for all eternity. So prepare our hearts now, Father. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. It's, uh, there's a story of a man that was with his nagging wife in a trip through, I heard some of you laugh already, um, but uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're going through a trip and through the Holy Land in Jerusalem, and it happens that his wife actually dies. And as they're there in the, in the Holy Land, of course, you know, he has to go to a funeral home and sees a mortician, and the mortician tells him, look, you know, uh, it's going to cost you about uh, $5,000 if you want to ship your wife back home. But if you want to bury her here in the Holy Land, it's going to cost you 150 Of course, I know I'd win right now, let's take the 150 um, But the man, obviously thinking about this, 5000 150 he says, you know what, I'll ship her back home. The mortician, a little bit perplexed, says, why would you ship her back home? I mean, it's only 150 And at that moment, the husband replies, look, I, I heard that a long time ago. A man died here, was buried here. And three days later, he, he rose. <laughs> I'm not taking the chance. <laughs> so, ship her back. But now, um, and part of, of course, you know, and, and I'm sure it's the other way around. You ladies are like, yeah, it's, it should have been the other way around. And I, yeah, you're probably right. It, it probably could have been the wife and, and the brute husband, right? Um, but that story, of course, communicates the fact that there's one that rose. There's one that rose. The, 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 tomb, the tomb is empty, right? There's no one there. And I know for us, and, and as Tony mentioned here not too long ago, yeah, for us, it's Easter Sunday, right? The rest of the world, you're going to go somewhere to eat after service? Good luck trying to get a place, and you're probably going to be waiting many, many hours to get a seat, right? Because a lot of people are out. A lot of people probably went to church, and now they're, they're going about their day. But... Really, like I said earlier, there is nothing special in regards to this day because as a believer, we understand who, who died for us on a daily basis. Every Sunday, at least that's what I hope you hear from this pulpit, 
is that there's one that died and paid for our sin because there's none righteous here in this room, sitting in this room. There's no one here that one day will stand before God and pull out their list and think that their list of good deeds is somehow going to be longer than all the, de- and all, all the things that God has been writing down, right, uh, that you've done that are sins. There's no way. But we come here this morning to remember exactly that. Because the, without the resurrection, in other words, to have the resurrection, you have to have the death of Christ. Right? That's where the, the, the resurrection takes meaning, it takes shape. And, and so for us this morning, I want us to read John chapter 12, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 33. As I'll give you some time, I was reminded that in my last sermon I, was, I actually skipped some verses, accidentally. And, yeah, some of you don't even realize it. See, that goes to show that you guys weren't even paying attention. But, that was encouraging to me when I heard that. Because I know that someone was listening. And I didn't do it intentionally because I wanted to sidestep a difficult situation. It just wasn't. It was one of those uh, errors <laughs> through... Uh, a fallible man like myself. And I just, but I hope that that doesn't happen this morning. So as you're there in John chapter 12, we're going to be reading verses 20 through 33. And this part of the scriptures picks up right where we just heard this morning, right? This triumphal entry. And we, here we have these Greeks that are approaching Andrew and Philip, as we're going to see here. And they're going to request to, we want to see Jesus. In other words, not, can we see him? Like, it's almost like, hey, we, we need to talk to him. The way you would probably barge into your supervisor's, hey, I need, to talk, I, I need to have a word with you. Right? You probably need to speak something important at that moment. That's probably what the, what the heart in the text is. So, as you are reading this with me, consider the unfolding of the redemption story. As we're reading this, how is the redemption story unfolding in this passage? Okay, so John chapter 12, verses 20 through 33. So these, referring to the Greeks, came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered, Now among Now Jesus answered, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And this is what he says. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Verse, 20, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said 
that it hath thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And this is a reading of God's word. Immediately, we see that there's a plan. And how do we know that? Because it says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That hour, in other words, that moment has arrived. Everything that we have been seeing, the darkest, in other words, where we see in Scripture, that darkest day that was around the corner has arrived. This is what people were celebrating this past week, right? The Holy Week. The Passion of Christ. Remembering what Christ had done. The, 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 the road to Calvary, as it's been said. The, suf- the suffering servant now was going to suffer greatly. And he was going to be betrayed. But he wasn't going to be betrayed by his enemy. He was actually betrayed by one of his own. By one that actually walked with Christ for three years during his ministry. For one that saw him and everything that he did. All the miracles that he had seen. Everything that he had spoken. He was present. And it's one of his own that would betray him. All of us have said, you know, for us, you're, the moment you're born is the moment you begin dying, right? From the cradle to the grave. But for Christ, it was from a manger to a cross. That was what awaited him. Now, we continue understanding that. But it's funny that Jesus, his mind is now focused on this. His mind is consumed by the, by the fact that the hour has arrived. All the promises in the Old Testament, all the prophecies, all the Christ types, all the shadows at this moment, everything from Noah right, and the ark, saving, putting people, almost like called to recreate this, this type of Christ, because the earth had been judged already. Abraham. I mean, you go down the list. Joseph. David. Solomon. And the list goes on and on. Isaac. All of these figures in the Old Testament now is starting to make sense because they were always pointing to Christ. Of course, that's why we always say you have to read the Old Testament in light of the New Because the Old Testament is kind of shedding that light onto the things of the Old Testament that for them was hard for the Jewish mind. It's like, yeah, we get it, we get it. But now it starts being unpacked. Now it starts making sense. And that's what we're seeing. And now this hour that had arrived, if you recall prior, even in the Gospel of John, but we see this frequently, Jesus would often say, the hour had not come. So even that testifies to the fact that Jesus was aware 
that there was an hour to come. Just consider the wedding feast at Cana. They had run out of wine. What does Mary say? Hey, they've run out of wine. Woman, what does it have anything to do with me? My time has not yet come. In other words, the time for me to be glorified had not yet come. Again, and there's, and there's a lot of symbolism there with, again, you're seeing the wine, right? And what we're going to be celebrating today, right? The fruit of the, we, we drink the fruit, of, the fruit of the vine, right? In communion, the shedding of blood, right? Of Christ's blood. And so at this moment, you see that authorities often throughout John, in John 7, trying to seek and arrest Jesus, but couldn't. Let me read two of them for you in John 7, verses 28 through 30. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. John 8, just a few, another chapter over. He's addressing the Pharisees, they're inquiring of him about Jesus bearing witness to himself. And now this is what he says. He says, They said to him, therefore, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So you see that there's this hour that's waiting. I think we've, we've, we can understand that. But there's another thing here that we can't overlook. And it's Jesus' humanity. Because that very verse says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That title, the Son of Man, this is not the first time we see it. Jesus oftentimes refers to himself as the Son of Man. But what does that mean? Well, it means that he was fully man. And it also means that he was fully God. Not that he was fully God or fully man, and he would kind of alternate between the two. He was 100% God 100% of the time, and he was 100% man 100% of the time. We'll figure that. We can't understand that because we, we, we're, we're not that. We're, we're, we're men and women. We're, 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 we're sons of Adam. That's it. But he was fully God. That's, that's what the incarnation is about. The way he was conceived speaks of his deity. And so he says, and John, I know in, in, in Sunday school it was mentioned, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was God. Right? It's all about Jesus. And you just follow a couple of verses after that. In John 1.14, it speaks of his humanity. So this is the title. In Colossians 2.9, in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All deity dwells in Jesus. That's His deity. He's God. Okay? That's what Paul writes to the Colossians. Then in Matthew 9, he says, Matthew writes, or speaking of Jesus, he's documenting, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Because that authority belonged to who? It belonged only 
to God. And he is saying, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. They knew exactly what he was saying. There was no, I don't know, it's a little bit great what he's saying. You know, it could be taken any way. No, he is saying, I have that authority. I am God. And he is the Son of Man. But how does the Son of Man fit within this, this plan? You remember in the transfiguration, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up there, and they see Jesus being transfigured. Imagine what that must have been like. Elijah and Moses, they're with him. And they're saying, now they're coming back from the mountain. And Matthew writes, um, this is what he, uh, excuse me, Mark. He says, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. He's the Son of Man. And Jesus, speaking to Caiaphas, the, great high, the, the, chief, the chief priest, he says, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's all over Scripture, beloved. He is who he is. And to Zacchaeus, remember Zacchaeus, the little tax collector is up there, come down Zacchaeus? Well, he says, today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So this Son of Man, this Son of Man, fully God and fully man, has come to seek and save the lost? Yeah. That's what he came to do. And so Andrew and Philip are aware of this. The audience that's there is aware of what Jesus is saying. Now, you immediately think that now Jesus is going to go ahead and expound on what's going to happen, and he is, and we're going to get to that part. But before he does that, he gives an interesting comment. He gives a prerequisite. You guys know what a prerequisite is? That's just, what's a prerequisite? If you are taking a college course, right, and you're, let's say you want to go into an engineering course or some medical course, whatever, there are certain courses that you have to take as prerequisites, right? Because it's going to prepare you for the courses that you're about to now dive into that are going to be more in-depth. But you have to have some kind of... So if you're an engineer, you're going to be taking calculus and whatever level of calculus, calculus 10,000, okay? But you have to take some type of algebra. You have to take some trig. You have to take some other things just to kind of prepare you as you start going. The same thing in the medical field, right? You're going to take more biology courses, more chemistry courses to prepare you for those in-depth um, studies, And Jesus is going to do something very similar. He's going to tell them, he's going to give a prerequisite. But he begins by saying something very interesting. Pay attention. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now for us, that truly, truly, okay, it's kind of, doesn't really make sense. I mean, we really don't speak in that language, so it's kind of foreign to us. But what he, in essence, is saying, a a man from the Middle East, what he's actually saying, he's actually starting to say, amen, amen. We're used to saying amen after, right? When we, someone says something that you agree with, so be it, right? You're you're coming in agreement, so be it. But when it's actually used at the beginning, it's a little bit different. Jesus saying, amen, meaning, what's to follow? I'm not speaking. What, What you're about to hear, it's not... And I'm saying it because I heard it said or because so-and-so said to me and now I'm repeating it. He's speaking as an authority figure. 
And when that amen, amen is doubled, truly, truly, perk up your ears. Pay attention. Lean in a little bit more. Because what he's about to say matters. Well, everything that Jesus says matters. But here specifically with these words, that's exactly what he's saying. It's the equivalent of if you've been on a plane before. And you're boom, boom, right? This is your captain speaking. Your captain speaking. If you're listening on, on whatever it is, that shuts off. And all of a sudden you start hearing the, the captain through those headphones. You have to pay attention to what that captain is saying. That's exactly the same heart. Pay attention to what our Lord is saying. And he gives a, spirit, a spiritual metaphor. He uses this grain of wheat. For us, how many farmers do we have here? None? Okay. So this probably wouldn't make sense to many of us. We don't have any farmers. But this is an agrarian society. There are societies that are used to plowing. I mean, you see a lot of the illustrations, a lot of the imagery that, that's used throughout the, te- the New Testament. They are precisely around because plowing, right? If you're plowing, how many of you have plowed? None of us have plowed. But for someone, we used to have a brother here, Rick, who, who this would probably, he's the only one that would, this would probably make sense for. But uh, this is exactly what he's saying. Now he's going to get into it. He says, there's a far greater reality, beloved, that we can't miss. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He, in essence, is doing two things. He is speaking of himself. And that's the beauty of the gospel, beloved. God never, Jesus never requires anything of you and me that he, has ne- that he himself is not willing to do or hasn't done. Jesus himself is saying, unless a grain of wheat falls and dies, it's not going to bear fruit. How do we have, how do we attain this great salvation that we claim to have? Through the death of Christ. It came through death. And likewise, it's applicable to you and to me today. The only pathway to life with God, to spiritual life and glory, is through death. There's no other way. We have to consider that. In other words, what he's saying is you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have it both ways. You can't look to live your life here on earth and enjoy it to the fullest, and I'm also going to go ahead and worship God. In other words, I'm only going to come to Him as it's convenient, or when I need something, but I also really want to hold on to these things. That was the problem with the rich young ruler. That's exactly the problem, and that's not just his problem. That's every single one of our problems. That we want to hold on to the things of this earth, and we and by Diva, what happens? We end up losing. We end up losing eternity. We miss the point. Now, oh, but I'm a believer. I can enjoy. It. We're talking Osborne, right? Can't I enjoy? Can Christians have fun? Absolutely, absolutely, you can. <laughs> but you know that the one who gave you all these things to enjoy is God. In other words, put it a different way, the way Paul said. What the problem here is, is the problem of Romans 1. People exchanged the worship of God, the worship of the Creator for the creation. 
People chose to worship the creature rather than the creator, is what scripture says. That's the problem. There's nothing wrong with you to enjoy the things that God has given you. By all means, go ahead. That's why he gave them to you. He's a God, yes. He's a God that, that curses, that, that there is sin. But he's also a God that blesses. I know for us, it's like, oh, we don't like to use that word because then we're going to be charismatic and we're going to go into the other direction. No, he blesses his people. Praise the Lord for that. But there's a reality here that we have to consider. And everything in life, whether you're going into medical school, whether you're going into engineering, it requires sacrifice. Our brother Mina here, he's not, he's not here this morning, learning to become a neurologist. He's moving to Orlando with his wife here next month. I know for them it's not easy, but that's the sacrifice that he has to make for the course that he has to, for, for the career that he has chosen. And I'm sure there's many sacrifices out there. You guys can fill in the blanks. Some of you are engineers, some of you are nurses, some of you are, and you, there's, I'm sure, many nights that you have forsaken to attend family gatherings, having fun, so that you can go ahead and do what you have to do, but you know that there's a reward that's coming. Isn't it, isn't it the same? For those that are you that are in marriage, marriage requires a death of sorts, doesn't it? The moment you say, I do to your spouse, you're by default also saying, I'm dead to every other person out there. That's in essence what the I do's are. I, I do. I am devoted to you. My heart belongs to you and to no one else. And what Jesus is getting, that's he's getting to the heart of the matter. Saying, you have to die. There is, you can't serve God and mammon. You didn't see Jesus divided between the pleasures of this world and, and, and serving God. He served God 100%. Oh, but that's easy. He's God. No, we just, we just showed you. Oh, he's, he's, fully, he's fully man too. So he dealt with the temptations that you and I have to deal with on a daily basis. He wasn't immune to them. He wasn't exempt. 2 Corinthians 5.15, And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. You see that? That's exactly what Jesus did. So that our hearts may be for himself, that we may no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us, for our sake, and was raised. So what is your attitude? I know not everyone here is walking with Christ. Where are you at? Where are you walking? Who are you serving? Are you living for yourself? These are, these are serious things to consider. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Die before you die. For there is no chance after. Die before you die. Because there's no chance after. I know many of us want to think, oh, when I get up there, uh, <laughs> no. By then it's too late. Just forbid it, Lord. Uh, that, that, that him, when I survey the wondrous cross, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. That's what Isaac Watts wrote in that beautiful hymn. 
There's nothing for you and I to boast in. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to your blood. And the beautiful thing here is that Christ continues, he says, you don't get to serve me on your terms. You have to serve me on my terms. I'm the one that's giving my life up for you. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. You have to be a disciple of Christ. You can't look to get the blessings without the commitment. I know that's very common in our culture, right? We want to have all the benefits without the commitment. Be careful. Because if you take that thinking to your walk, to to your relationship with Christ, then you've missed it. You can't go to Christ and say, you're only going to get 50% of me, or you're only going to get this much of me. You get everything because you gave everything. That's our Savior. And so Jesus has disclosed this plan. He discloses this plan to us. He gives us this prerequisite. is sharing what he's actually going to do. That he himself is actually going to end up dying. And now he gives us the reason for, for, for this. He gives us a purpose. In verses 27 through 33, the reason. Jesus' humanity is not theoretical, beloved. I know we just covered that here moments ago. But his humanity is not something that we can just ponder upon and just say, oh, well, it's just words on, uh, uh, in Scripture. It's real. And what I mean by that, he says, now, now is my soul troubled. That word troubled, taraso, is, is, is the very word that, he, that is used to describe what Jesus felt when Lazarus, when he got there and saw Lazarus. And he was troubled with seeing Lazarus there dead. He is troubled. If he's fully God, why would he be troubled, right? I mean, this should be a piece of cake for him. But he's not. He's troubled because he's, he's man. And John is letting us know that. He's letting his reader know that. Think about the temptation. What's happening in the temptation? Satan is there tempting him. Why is he tempting him? Jesus is there, yeah, he's, he's there, he's been fasting, he's been in the wilderness for 40 days, I mean, he's by himself, probably very weak. At the weakest point, fleshly speaking, and being tempted by none other than Satan. None of us, I don't think, have ever been tempted to that point. See, the bitter cup of Calvary was reserved for none other than Jesus. The bitter cup of Calvary was reserved for no one else but him. He's the one that, that could only drink that cup. You and I say, oh yeah, we would have... Peter, remember Peter? Peter thought, oh yeah, Lord, I'll, I'll die for you. And Jesus says, no. Oh, you're going to deny me three times. Peter walked with him. Who saw him. He had a good heart. And I'm sure many of you would do the same thing and probably say, and I include myself in that. I would say the exact same, not you, I, not you, Lord, but I. Oh, no. We wouldn't. Because we don't know what we're talking about. That bitter cup was reserved for Jesus. John Stott, read the book, The Cross of Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, 
I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? Ponder upon that for a second. In the real world of pain, our God did not shy away from it. Our Savior didn't run in the opposite direction. He went through the cross. That's exactly what he did. And that's for you and for me. He, Jesus was not immune to his pain or to pain or to agony. And I know that John doesn't precisely talk about the moment in the Garden of Gethsemane the way the other gospel writers do. But this right here, my soul is troubled, is in many ways using, kind of giving us the same imagery of when Jesus was in the Garden. That's where his heart was, because he is who he says he is. He is the Son of Man. But the Father's glory, where does the Father's glory fall in this? Well, that's exactly what's on the heart of his mind. Think about that for a second. The Father's glory. He's about to go to the cross. And what's his prayer? Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. If, I, if you've ever been in a hospital in, in a lot of pain, God is not the one that runs through your mind. If you've ever had someone or see someone with kidney stones or in labor, I mean, I, you're not seeing that woman in labor thinking, oh, Jesus, you know, and, and clapping and praying and, and being super holy. The pain is excruciating. And yet Jesus, knowing what awaits him, saying, Father, glorify your name. There's something beautiful about the Reformed faith. And the fact that in the Reformed faith, the glory and the holiness of God takes center. That when we sing and when we worship, we're not worshiping for ourselves. We're worshiping the one who died for us. The glory of Christ now all of a sudden takes center stage in every way. Very opposed and very contrary to what we see a lot of times in Christendom today. It's the complete opposite. People are there to be reminded that I am the best thing that God made. That there's no one better than me. You saved me. You shed your blood for me. Now go ahead and do, you know, bless me to the, to the uttermost, to the, uh, to the whatever power. And we forget that we gather to worship our God. We, get, we come here to worship our Savior, our King. That's the beauty of having Christ at the center of your faith, the glory of God. Because that is exactly what Scripture teaches, and that is exactly what Christ is modeling for us. What did Jesus say when He taught us to pray? What was the very first word that He says? And when you pray... Say, Our Father, hallowed be thy name. He starts with the very thing. And, he would, and you would think that Jesus, he's practicing it right now. Father, glorify your name. To which God responds, and we hear what he, what he says. God already said, I have glorified, and I will glorify it again. And we don't know 
precisely, we can assume and maybe perhaps um, link it to the fact of the times that God spoke during Jesus' ministry was when he was baptized and at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But now God is saying, I'm going to glorify it again. So what does the cross accomplish? Jesus says this. Jesus says, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Three things. The judgment of this world. That's what the cross of Christ is going to do. It's going to accomplish. It's it's the judgment of this world. The sin that was in this world. The series of events that are about to take place that are... See, Christ was going to go, right, with Pilate, and he was going to be arrested. He was already arrested at that moment. But the world is going to be saying, condemn him. Think about that for a second. See, the world is thinking that they're putting him to death, and they're going to do away with him. That's it. But it's actually accomplishing the complete opposite. The very death of Christ accomplishes something far greater. Yet the world did not understand that. Jesus said that. I've come to be the light of the world. But they chose darkness. They preferred to live in darkness. That's exactly what's happening. If you remember there, Jesus being arrested, Pilate says what? Hey, you want me to free what are the, what are the uh, fairies and the elders that are doing? Hey, hey, ask for Barabbas. Ask for Barabbas. Because by doing that, they know that they're going to destroy Jesus. That's what the scripture says. But what about Pilate? Pilate could have washed his hands clean all he wanted. But Pilate was also responsible. If you recall, what did Pilate's wife say? I have nothing to do with this righteous man. He's been of great trouble to me in my dream. So Pilate might say, oh, well, at least I gave him the option. No, he had a responsibility. He could have easily said, no, he has done nothing wrong. But he didn't. Peter denying Jesus. So this isn't just for the world. Even Peter denying him. So the judgment of the world is upon, uh, is coming now to this moment at the cross. And Satan, the ruler, is going to be cast out, which is the second thing. See, up until this moment, Satan is the one that has, has been ruling. He's the one that is the, is the prince, right? The prince of this world. He's the one that's been roaming free. He's the one that's been going about doing his things. Just think about when, he was, when, when, when Jesus was tempted. What does he tell Jesus? Look into all these kingdoms. Look into all these kingdoms. If you worship me, I'll give them to you. <laughs> Satan is saying, I will give you these kingdoms, as if they, somehow they belong to him. That is exactly what, what, what Satan is doing. And what does Jesus reply to him? No. Worship the Lord your God only, right? Only him shall you serve. Jesus doesn't worship him. But that is where Satan was in the wilderness. So at face value, the world again appears like Satan has won. The world thinks that now, Satan thinks he's won. This is finally coming to an end. But it's actually doing the complete opposite. The cross is actually disarming Satan. It's actually putting to death, death, 
That is what the cross of Christ accomplished. Satan, the cross is going to dethrone Satan and put Christ on the, thr- on the throne, on his rightful place. And the third thing that the cross accomplishes is that it's going to draw people to himself. The cross, as Jesus says, when I, when I am lifted up, this is, the, this is the climax of all of redemption. This is the moment where everything comes to, to that highest pinnacle, the highest point is the cross. And this is what he says. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The prophet Isaiah wrote that in Isaiah 52. And John 1, John 1, verses 11 through 13, he came to his own, the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. But pay attention here. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Jews rejected him. And now, all of us get this opportunity that when you see Christ, you get to put your faith and trust in him. You don't have to be Jewish. This promise isn't just for the Jewish people. The Messiah is for anyone who believes. Charles Spurgeon said this, Man seeks to win his glory by the slaughter of others, Christ by the slaughter of himself. Men seek to get crowns of gold. He sought a crown of thorns. He stooped when he conquered. And he counted that the glory lay as much in the stooping as much as in the conquering. Being brought low, in other words, the cross that was meant for you and for me because we're sinners. There's none righteous here in this room. I said that already. And therefore... The cross is what we really deserve. And what Spurgeon is saying, Jesus went to that place. He identified with sinners. He took the sin upon himself. The sinless man took the sin upon his shoulders and carried it to the cross. He didn't have a king's scepter. Instead, in his hand were nails. Just like Spurgeon said, the crown of thorns, right? Not a crown of gold. He didn't have a throne, but the cross for sinners. Not the love of the world, but the wrath of the Father. That is the Christ that we serve, beloved. Now I know that this is, you have to understand the cross in order order for the resurrection to actually have the power that we understand it has. Because without the cross, there is no resurrection. If God would have simply come and died without doing what he did, what does it do? He had to identify because sin. See, he didn't have a lamb. Typically in the Old Testament, what would happen? You had to bring a lamb, right? A spotless lamb. 
Jesus couldn't look in either direction and find a lamb to, to, to place in his behalf. He was the lamb. He had become the lamb that had been long awaited, the one that had been promised. But the beautiful thing is that now the resurrection, three days later, that tomb is empty. There's no one in that tomb, beloved. The world can continue scratching their head all they want, but this doesn't make any sense. No, I don't. You can scratch your head all you want. But the fact of the matter is that tomb is empty. And people have tried to debunk it. People have tried to come out. They've come out with research, historians, and everybody. And the conclusion is still the same. The conclusion is still the same, beloved. For us, for those that are hidden in Christ, beloved, death has lost its sting. Death no longer, the death of death, as John Owen wrote, right? The death of death in the death of Christ. That's exactly what we're seeing here. Death has lost its sting. So for us as believers, those of you that are hidden in Christ, this is your victory. The resurrection screams victory. But you can only say victory because Christ had to first say, it is finished. If Christ doesn't say it is finished, we still be going on and on and on and on. But it was paid once and for all. Death has now become the doorway for those that have been reconciled to God. And if you have not closed with Christ, if you have not come to Christ, may today be that day. Stop messing around. Come to Him. Stop trying to figure it out. Stop trying to clean yourself up. Stop trying to get your act together because the cross is precisely for those that don't have their act together. That's exactly what the cross does. And so, the hope that we have in the, in the cross, think of the exchange between the criminal on the cross with the other mocking criminal. I know what he says. We know, we know very well what he says to Jesus. But sometimes we forget what he said to the other mocking criminal. What does he say? He says, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, speaking of Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus respond to him? Amen, I say to you. Truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. So if you are not in Christ, my hope is that your name, that you would take seriously what that criminal said, and that you come to Christ, that your name may be written in the Lamb's Book of Life on that day. Father, we rejoice, and I know it's, it's, a solemn, it's a solemn rejoicing because we know what it cost you. It cost you your only begotten Son.
And so, Father, we humbly thank you. Thank you for the victory that Jesus won on our behalf. Thank you for the the room that he has already gone to prepare for his people. Thank you for the promise that he's coming back. That no matter what amount of wars we may experience, however much illness we may experience, how much ever pain we may experience, we know that there's a better world to come for those that are in Jesus. Thank you, Father, for that promise. Thank you that you're a God who keeps your word. That you didn't forget the promise that you made to Abraham. That you fulfilled it in Christ. By which all of us, those that are in Christ, are heirs of that promise, beneficiaries, benefactors of that promise. So Father, I pray that you would be with your people now. As we look to partake of that sacrament that the Lord Jesus gave us to remember him and his death, but also remembering that his death purchased us. It brought about our adoption. It brought about our reconciliation. Sinners through the cross can now be reconciled to a holy God. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.